Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. It's a good Sunday. Uh, really exciting to be here with you guys. Last week, told you my favorite driver was running for a NASCAR championship. He won. Uh, I've never cheered for winners in anything, so I just feel really good about that. Last night, we went to the Oklahoma State Cowboy game. They won. That's awesome. And praise God, OU lost. You know what I mean? It's like, all right. You guys laughed at me when they lost to Iowa State. So Some of you are like, I want to get more spiritual. And... Uh, and, and so I'll turn to something really spiritual, and that's pecan pie, uh, which is another reason why this is a great Sunday. So after the service today, we're having our family meal, uh, which is our environment where we come together and we fellowship and we eat, and then we take communion at the end of it. Uh, it'll be at the event center about 30 minutes after the service. Uh, and the theme is Thanksgiving. So you know what that means. <clears throat> Some of you might be excited about turkey and ham. I'm excited that there's at least going to be probably five to six pecan pies there, and uh, it's bulking season for me. And... I'm really excited about it. And I get to do my favorite thing today, which is preach the Bible. Uh, and we're, we're going to continue in this series in Third John. We've got this week and next week. And then we're moving into our Christmas series where we begin to celebrate the coming of Jesus. And uh, I have a couple of things for you, a couple of gifts. Uh, if you uh, have a family, even if you don't, you could do this as well. But we have these books back there uh, called Waiting for Jesus. And these are uh, designed to engage you with your family. So if you have little ones, uh, it's just a short, like, two-minute-to-read devotion each day leading up to Advent, uh, it, through the Advent series leading up to Christmas, and uh, that'll start next week. But I have about eight of these back there, so just take one per family. If we run out, I'll buy some more for next week, but uh, I didn't want to buy more than what I needed to. Uh, and this is really cool. So it's got uh, stories in here, but then it also has activities you can do with your family that are really neat. Uh, so I encourage you to check that out. And then if you've got a really little one, or your reading level is about like mine, this book is a great book to read with your family as well. That's back there. It's my gift to you. You guys can take one of each of those until we run out of them. Again, just try to keep it one per family, uh, and I'll, I'll bring some more next week if we need to. But with that, I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to jump into Third John. Father, as we come before you today, uh, Lord, I just pray that you would calm our souls, you'd calm our minds as we focus in on your word. Lord, we're, we're grateful for you. God, thankful that every breath we breathe comes from you. God, my life is not my own. It's yours. It was bought with a price through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I do not live under my own rules, deciding what I want to do by my own feelings. But Lord, I seek to submit with a posture of humility to your lordship in my life. God, I pray that we would all today leave here more excited about who you are and what you've done And God, that following you wouldn't be something we were obligated to do, but it would be something we wanted to do because of your goodness. And Lord, as we lead others, I pray that we would lead the way that you have led us. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. So we come to the conclusion of the letter. We see John is uh, giving advice to some leaders in the church. Uh, Specifically, he's talking about three different leaders. He's talking about Demetrius, Diotrephes, and of course he's writing the letter to Gaius. And uh, last week we looked at how... You get power in the kingdom of God. It's a lot different than how you get power in the world. Uh, One of the ways you get power in the world is the same as the world and the kingdom, and that is you lead by position, meaning you're the mom or the dad or I'm the pastor. Uh, If you're a principal, then you've got authority. If you're the boss of a company, you have authority. Whatever it is, you have authority based upon the position that you hold. 
But we said that's actually the lowest form of leadership. That's the form of leadership that everybody in the world fights for. They want to be the president or they want to be the senator or they want to be this guy or that guy or this girl or that girl. They want to be in charge by position. But last week we looked at there's actually two ways that, that there's better ways to get position in the kingdom of God that are actually more impactful. And that is leading by example, which is what we see our Savior do. And if you lead by example long enough, then you can lead by respect. Leading by respect is people follow you because of who you are. They trust you as an individual. So before they really ask a lot of questions about what you're asking them to do, they say yes, because they love and they trust you. And we said that's the ultimate form of leadership. That's where we're all trying to get to. But the question is, is once we have leadership, what do we do with it? So whether you're leading by position or you're leading by example or you're leading by respect, how do I use this authority that Jesus has given me? And today we're going to look at four things that I think every godly leader should do. Now, if you're like, I'm not really a leader, I would say you might be more of a leader than what you think you are. Uh, if, you, if you are a father or a mother, you're a leader of a family. Uh, if you're a Christian, you are called to, to disciple, to bring up younger Christians under you, and you're leading those Christians. And of course, you have Christians above you who should be mentoring you, but you should be pulling in other Christians and mentoring them also, and you have leadership. So what do I do in those situations? How do I lead? And I think there's, there's four things that we see in this text. Number one, all good leaders submit humbly. They confront carefully. They encourage frequently, and they develop intentionally. So I'm going to look at them one by one. That was for all my type A people who like to have notes. Sometimes I'm able, even with my ADHD, to get a, a type outline, and I get really excited about it. So when I have it, I tell you guys. Uh, number one is uh, we're going to submit humbly. Submit humbly. Look at verse 9 with me. Third John, verse 9. I wrote, I being John, wrote something to the church. But Diotrephes, who loves to have first place among them, does not receive our authority. And I find this really interesting, the pronouns, if you'll notice. This is why sometimes you guys, you read your Bibles too fast. You read over it and you're like, I don't even notice anything in there. If you slow down, you'll notice some little things that are like, huh, I wonder why that's there. And it's really interesting because John starts with a singular pronoun. I wrote something to the church, which should be enough for diatrophies to listen. This is a guy who literally walked with Jesus, literally saw him rise from the dead. In the Gospel of John, he is referred to as the, the one that Jesus loved. Which, you know, that might be a sermon on humility when you write your own gospel and you're like, I'm the one Jesus loved. But that's beside the point. This is the one Jesus loved. You think you ought to listen to this guy, right? Not diatrophies. But diatrophies, who loves to have first place, singular, among them, does not receive, and I would expect John to say, my authority. But he doesn't say my authority, does he? He says he does not receive our authority. And here's an interesting principle of the kingdom, and that is there should never be a person in this room who has ultimate authority. You should always have somebody who has authority over you in your life. It is really true that ultimate authority ultimately corrupts. And it does. And we see that. Whether you're the dad of the family and you're like, I am going to throw my weight around and I'm going to lead this family and I'm going to be under my own authority. Or whether you're the uh, boss of a company and you're like, I'm the leader of this. Or there's churches where there are guys like me who take ultimate authority. We're going to do things the way the pastor says to do it. And we're going to pay the pastor the salary the pastor wants. And we kind of just throw our weight around. And in the kingdom of God, what John is trying to understand is, wants you to understand rather, is that even he is under the authority of other people. Even John has co-equals. And we see this throughout the New Testament. Like there's this amazing scene where the Apostle Paul confronts Peter. And Peter submits to Paul. It's this amazing thing that we see in the kingdom of God. And it all starts with understanding that ultimately first place is already taken. And his name is Jesus. He's on the throne. The senior pastor of this church, if you want to say it that way, is not Blake Farley. It's Jesus Christ. 
That's why I'm pretty intentional about using, I like to use the word lead pastor because leading is what I am doing, but it doesn't make me any better than anybody else. Jesus is the senior directing pastor of this church and he should be the senior directing pastor of your life and in everything you do. And in the way that actually plays out is that we have people over us, humans of authority that we allow to be over us. And uh, this is really difficult, but I think it would make our lives a lot better. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example, a really practical example where this could play out, and that's in marriage. Um, I know you guys probably have perfect marriages and you never have conflict. <laughs> but in mine, from time to time, Taylor needs to repent. And, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's a joke. Calm down. Uh, no, but from time to time, we have, we have conflict. And uh, most conflicts in marriage are just kind of the daily little things that you can kind of work out and Hopefully you're just forgiving and submitting to one another. Uh, but what do you do in the, in the big ones, you know? Like when your spouse wants to move across the country and you want to stay here. Like what, what, what do we do then? What if, what if you think your spouse needs to stay in a certain job and, and you, you, you think that they need to go take this other job and make more money? And you both have prayed about it. And you both still, after praying, you're like, yeah, I think Jesus is telling us to leave. And you're like, well, my Jesus says we're supposed to stay. <laughs> I wish he could get us like in the same room together. You know, what, what do we do in those situations? And I do think you ought to pray and you ought to talk about it. There are some uh, lines of thinking that would say, you know, you ought to just do what the man says. Guys, that's a bad idea. <laughs> okay. Just to, just to throw your authority around. We're going to go because I'm a man and I said so. So get in the car and pack your stuff. She might go with you, but she's going to resent you. And dinner is going to not taste very good and I would check for poison. Because <laughs> the only way out of the covenant is death. And uh, that might be what she considers. <laughs> so what can we do that is better? And I think what we see in the kingdom is, is what if, as a married couple, we went and we found somebody and we allowed them to have authority over us? Maybe an older couple who we admire, or maybe a pastor or, or a marriage therapist, and we said, you know what, we're going to submit our will to you. We, wanna, we want you to hear both sides of everything. We want to pray with you, and whatever you say, we're going to submit to, and we're going to do it. Now, I know when I say the word submit, some of you guys cringe a little bit, because the word submission is not a popular word in our culture, is it? I don't like to submit. Uh, I was reading this week. Benjamin Franklin wanted the motto of the United States. He wanted this to be our motto. He wanted it to be uh, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. And there's something in most of us. If you're of European descent, you have an ancestor that agreed with that idea somewhere along the way and said, I want to go. I want to be my own person and make my own way. And that's a great spirit. That's why we have the country we have. But at times we need to submit to others. And we can get people who are above us, who we respect, and we can choose to be under their authority. And that's how actually we, we build our church. And if you want to learn more about the authority structure of the church, uh, you can come to Starting Point, where we talk about the church. I don't want to bore everybody here today with church government, because I know you didn't come like, I can't wait to learn about church government today. So you can come to Starting Point at the first of the month. But in your own life, I want you to ask, do you have people in authority over you? Do you have people who you're willing to submit to in areas of marriage and areas of money and when you have a big decision to make? Would you submit yourself to somebody else? That's what good leaders do. You don't start by leading, you start by being led. Number one, you submit humbly. Number two, this one's going to be difficult for, for some of you on two different sides of the, of the coin here. You've got to confront carefully. Good leaders confront carefully. When they see sin, when they see something wrong, they confront, but they do so carefully. Verse 10, this is why if I come, I will remind him of the works he is doing slandering us with malicious words. And he is not satisfied with that. He not only refuses to welcome fellow believers, but he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church. So John is upset with uh, diatrophies on four counts. Number one, 
you see that he is he's slandering the apostles with malicious words. Number two, he's not only satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome fellow believers. And this would be fellow teachers coming in. He says, no, you can't come in here and teach my people because I'm the leader. And he even stops those other leaders like Gaius who want to do so. And he uses his authority to expel them from the church. He's ruling with a very heavy hand. And what I find interesting is the way that John goes about confronting him. The way John goes about confronting him is is interesting because he says, this is why if I come. And at first I read that like, uh, you know, I was at the OSU game yesterday and before the Cowboys come out, it's really cool. They play really intense music and then there's like this Western movie. I'm not good with movies. You guys probably know the movie. Uh, But he says something like, I'm coming and I'm bringing hell with me. And then everybody goes, whoa, and they come out. And when I first read this, that's what I was picturing in my mind. Like Grandpa John is coming and he better watch out. If I come, I'm going to get it. But as I read this text more and more, I realized that's not really John's tone. John has a a more patient tone. And and in fact, I would think John would not say if I come, but when I come. And and here's the thing. For some of you, this is one side of the coin. You are too confrontational. Like you love a good fight. And when you see something wrong, you will go into it. This is, I wasn't like this, but pastoring made me like this. Where like I just I, if I see something awkward or I see something where somebody is doing something, I'll just go right to him and we'll just we'll settle it right there. But that's not always the best way to handle things. And if you're married and you get two confrontational people together, that is what we would call fireworks and not very fun uh, because you just you're constantly butting heads over and over and over. And what we see John here doing is he's doing it patiently. And I think this is what John's doing. If we, if we look at his first letter in First John chapter five, he gives us great advice about what to do when we see somebody in sin. Whether that be a kid that we we're, we're parenting, whether that be a spouse, whether that be somebody that you know we, we are discipling in the ways of Jesus, whatever it is, he says this. Verse 16. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, and I think he means physical death there, like that's literally going to kill them, he should ask and God will give life to him. To those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. In other words, what he's saying is, before you go and confront the person, pray that God would confront them. Can you imagine if we did this? You see something in your spouse that you think is wrong, that they're doing, and you say, God, would you convict them if they're wrong? And if not, convict me. You see something in a friend, you know, your friend is is constantly loud and overbearing, and nobody can stand being around them. Instead of saying something like, hey, dude, you're annoying, uh, God, would you convict them that the way they're acting turns people off from them? And then just see what happens. This is the kind of patience that it takes. And for a lot of us, especially if you're on the confrontational side, you don't want to do this. Because it requires you to wait for somebody to change what they're doing. I don't like that. I want you to change now because you're bothering me or you're clearly doing it wrong. You've got to confront carefully. Now, what I do find interesting is John says, I will confront him. And this is the other side of it. Some of you, you don't want to confront at all. You're not confrontational at all. You're what we would call enablers. <laughs> You're like, oh, that's fine. And what you sometimes do is you just gossip behind the person's back instead, if we're being honest. Right? Like you still confront them because you've got to get it out of you, but you're not doing it to their face. And here's, here's what John, I think, would give us advice on. I think he would make sure, he would say, before you confront them, you've got to make sure you're the right person, and you've got to make sure you do it in the right way. This is why if I come, I want you to notice that John doesn't send Gaius to go talk to him. John doesn't write a letter to Demetrius. Here's a a great principle. This might be the reason you guys came today. I'm about to save some marriages. Do not fight over text message. It just doesn't work. 
Right? You've got to do it in the right way. And John says, I'm going to confront him, but I'm going to do it face to face. We're going to have a talk about this. And then it says, I will remind him of the works he is doing, slandering us with malicious words, and he's not satisfied with that. Uh, and he not only refuses to welcome fellow believers, but he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church. And the reason I read that again was because I want you to see that John is the right person to do this. Now, you might not be the right person to confront whoever it is in your life. Like, for instance, if you're trying to confront an adult parent and you're their child, they're not going to listen to you probably. <laughs> they change your diapers. They're not going to listen to what you say about money. You know, like it just it doesn't work. And maybe if you're a parent, I could reverse it. You have a kid. Sometimes the best way to confront your kid is not you saying something, but coming to the youth pastor or the pastor or one of their older friends that they respect and say, hey, would you talk to my kid about this? Because I've seen it in youth ministry. A parent will say something to a kid for a year straight. And then I say something to them and they're like, that's the most profound thing ever. (laughs) And it's so frustrating. But sometimes it's got to be the right person who says it. And the reason I think John is the right person is because John probably sees a lot of himself in Demetrius. Remember last week, we looked at that first line where it says, uh, Demetrius loved to have first place. And we looked at the words of Jesus where he confronted that directly in the Gospels many years before this. And, and he says, and in the world, that's how you serve. You get in first place and the people serve you. But that's not how it is in my kingdom. The leaders are in last place. It's an upside down org chart and the leader serves. He says, even the son of man himself came not to be served, but to serve which is a profound idea that the God of this universe would come not to be served, but to serve. And if you remember what started Jesus on that conversation, it was John. John was trying to get first place. He's trying to connive behind the other disciples' backs. And he's trying to say, Jesus, I want the right seat at your throne when we come and we take over Jerusalem. I mean, when we topple the Roman Empire, I want to be in the place of power. And Jesus has to confront John. And then we also see uh, Demetrius is the other thing that's wrong with Demetrius is he's trying to get people uh, out of the church who don't follow him. So he didn't want anybody else to follow him. I want you to look at Mark chapter nine, verse 38 and 39. This is many years earlier. And it says, John, who? John. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. And he's proud of it, right? Like they didn't have the proper brand identity. So we told them to stop. You need to talk to our agent and get some copyright patent for this stuff because we are the Jesus people. You are not the Jesus people. He's trying to get people. He's trying to keep people away from following anybody else. And then we look at what Jesus says to him. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. See, I think this is why John wants to sit down with Demetrius because he, he sees a lot of himself in Demetrius. So when you're confronting somebody, you've got, you got to do it carefully. You've got to make sure you're the right person. You've got to have a plan, but you've got to do it. Uh, I talk about this quite a bit. I'm spending the most time on this one because I think it's the most important. It's the one we, we miss the most. Uh, I talk a lot about the difference in nice and kind because I think it's really important. And for those of you who are not confrontational, you need to understand the difference. Uh, nice is to be pleasant and agreeable. And nice is how we survive Thanksgiving with family. We need to be nice. It's called biting your tongue, right? It's like, I don't agree with your politics or anything that you're saying, but I'm just going to try to not ruin this Thanksgiving meal. So we be nice. But to be kind is to look out for the best interest of the person. And if you're a parent, you know that to look out for the best interest of the child is sometimes to not be very nice, to not be pleasant and agreeable. And I would just say, if you're the type of person who struggles with confrontation, you might be robbing the person of something great in their life. Uh, Because a lot of times we think, I don't want to confront somebody because I don't want to hurt their feelings. When in reality, we're not worried about them at all. We're worried about us. Like, what if they don't like me anymore? 
Or what if this feels awkward for me? What if I don't like doing this? So we're really, we say we're being selfless, but we're really being super selfish by not confronting people when they need to be confronted. I saw this play out. I was in a, in a therapy group, and uh, my, uh, my therapist was a, kind of a small, older guy. And we had this guy uh, in, the, in the group who uh, was huge. I mean, I, I'm not going to say he was on steroids, but he was on steroids. You know what I'm saying? Big guy. Dwayne Johnson-sized guy. Uh, and, uh, and, and he, for this deal, we were supposed to not have our phones. And, and this huge guy... Uh, I guess kept his Apple Watch and he kind of sent out a text and he thought it was funny. Somehow, I don't know, Jesus told him or something, uh, the therapist found out that, that he had used his phone. And I'll never forget as this therapist, this old, kind of really weak, frail guy looks up at this huge bodybuilder and he says, I heard you had your phone. And in front of all of us, and I remember everybody in the room were like, oh boy, this is not going to go well. Uh, I didn't have my protein shake this morning. Uh, and I'm not a fighter, you know, so I'm, I'm like, this is not going to go well. And, uh, and, and the guy starts to fight back and the therapist doesn't even blink. He just looks at him and he says, you know what? I think your problem is you don't think the rules apply to you. And that's probably caused you a lot of problems in life. And I thought, oh boy, it's going to get good. But it, this huge burly guy started crying. It was exactly what he needed. Somebody confronted him in the right way. Now, my fear is those of you who are confrontational will listen only to the second half of what I just said. And those of you who are not confrontational will only listen to the first half of what I said. You know yourself. Which side are you? Confront carefully. All right. That's what good leaders do. Number three is we encourage frequently. Encourage frequently. Third John, uh, verse 11, it says, dear friend. Now, this is a very, very short book, and he uses the word dear friend five times. Throughout this whole letter, John is, is loving on Gaius. And uh, I'm going to give you an acronym for those of you who are note takers. It's the acronym LOVE. I don't normally do this. I think pastors who do this are really corny. But I swear to you, it just came like, together really quickly. So uh, this is if I had time, I'd take you through all of John's letter, and I'd show you how he does this. But I don't have time. So you just have to trust me and read your own Bibles this week and see if I'm lying or not. Uh, L stands for listen. This is how we encourage. We listen. Uh, without trying to solve problems. Now, this is hard for me as a man because I like to solve things. I'm sure there's some women like this too, but it seems to be a man problem where, you know, my wife calls me and says three things that are wrong, and I immediately go, well, here's the three things we do to fix it. And she doesn't want me to fix it. And this is, it was really hard for me to learn this in marriage because I'm like, yeah, but if we just did these things, it would actually fix the problem. And she's like, no, I just want you to listen to me. And, and I'm starting to learn that sometimes she just wants me to feel what she is feeling. And that is really hard to do, especially if you're a man. But I love this quote from Craig Rochelle. He says, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's really good word. And by the way, this is what Jesus does. As we look in the Gospel of John, he comes to Mary, uh, who has just lost her brother Lazarus. And he's literally about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And Mary's weeping. And if I was Jesus, I'd be like, chill. I'm about to raise him from the dead. You know, I'm Jesus. <laughs> But we, he doesn't. We get the shortest verse in all the Bible, and that is Jesus wept. He met her where she was. His people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So that's L. Listen, O is observe. Uh, throughout the, the third John letter, you see John affirming Gaius just over and over and over. He's affirming him for who he is and what he's done. He says, you are loved. He says, you've been a faithful servant. Uh, I think we, we need more of this, especially, again, I'm not trying to pick on the men, but I am one. This is really hard for me to, to truly kind of uh, come at a friend and tell them that, they, that I love them. You know, like I, I don't, normally when I'm with my guys on Tuesday morning Bible study, when we leave, I'm not like, I love you guys so much. 
you know, it's just kind of weird for men to talk in that way. But I, I think that we, we do need to do this, especially if you are a father. Some, some fathers I see, it's heartbreaking because their kid is trying to earn their approval instead of their father giving them the approval and encouraging them. Uh, and, and the reason I said observe is because if you see it, you need to say it. So when, when you see somebody doing something good, you gotta, you got to call it out. This will also help your marriage. Uh, in premarital counseling, there's a, an exercise that we do called withholds. And uh, in withholds, you sit down with your spouse and you give two positive and you give one negative withhold. So it's something you didn't tell them in the course of the last week or day, when, however often you do it. And uh, at first you sit down and you're like, man, I can't think of any. And then we have to limit you to three because you're like, <laughs> I've got all these negatives and, and some of these positives. And I'm like, okay, just we can only have three. And all your spouse is allowed to say is thank you. You're not allowed to talk about it. So they say something. You're not allowed to defend yourself. You're just allowed to say thank you. But what's really cool is the negatives feel good to get off your chest, but the positives build relationship. And, and I'd encourage you guys today, if you're married, do that. And if you, if you have kids, do that with your children. Tell them something that you've seen in them. All right, V is validate. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but he does. He validates uh, Gaius's problem. He says, you got this guy, Demetrius, and I understand it. And he gives him a solution, but he gives him the solution way later down in the letter. Uh, and then the last one is this, encourage. Just be an encouraging person. You know, I meet people all the time and like, you know, I was going to tell you that was a good sermon a while back, but I didn't want your head to get too big. And I'm like, what? Like, if you met people like this, they're like, they're, they're, the, they're, they're the humble police. You know, they don't want to tell you things because they want to keep you humble. And it's like, dude, most people tear themselves up on the inside enough. It's not like I need somebody to tell me uh, that I'm bad to humble myself. Like I already know in my heart of hearts, right? Like that's how we all feel. What we need is more people who encourage us. And I saw a great example of this yesterday at the OSU game. We were sitting uh, by this, this older couple behind us, and this is the kind of dad I want to be at sporting events. He was a grandpa, uh, and his son was a freshman, grandson was a freshman on the, on the OSU team, played special teams. His name was Jeffrey. And at the beginning of the night, I'll be honest with you, I didn't care about Jeffrey. But at the end of the night, I love Jeffrey. I was cheering for Jeffrey. I'd never cheered for anybody on special teams before, but I was cheering on special teams for Jeffrey. And I, the reason I was cheering for Jeffrey had nothing to do with Jeffrey, but had everything to do with the man behind me because he was just such a sweet man. And uh, here, here's what I know. I'm more likely to be the parent who is throwing things at a fourth grade basketball game because the ref made a bad call. Like, I, I see those guys and I'm like, that's embarrassing, but I know that's in me, right? You know, like I'm going to be yelling at my kid to drive the ball. And it's, it's, it's going to be awkward for everybody because they're going to be like, is that the pastor? And I'm like, you shut up, you know? <laughs> oh, goodness. But that was not this guy. I have, I mean, Jeffrey would run down the field and be on the other side. And he'd say, oh, he was so close. Did you see how fast he ran? <laughs> he said, oh, Jeff, Jeffrey's so excited. I just know they love Jeffrey because he's got the best attitude. You see Jeffrey out there? Look at Jeffrey. He's got all that tape on. I don't even know why he has all that tape on his shoes. But it, isn't that awesome? <laughs> so he just loved Jeffrey. And I thought, man, what would happen if we had more dads and moms like that? You know, just affirming. And I know some, we can go too far the other way where it's like we give a participation trophy to everybody. But I do think we need to validate and encourage people. That's what good leaders do. All right. Number four, uh, develop intentionally. So we said we submit humbly, confront carefully, encourage frequently. And ultimately, we got to develop intentionally. Verse 11 through 12 says, Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Everyone speaks well of Demetrius, even the truth itself, and we also speak well of him, and you know our testimony is true. That word imitate could also be follow. 
what John is doing here is he's using his platform as the apostle to help other people be leaders. You know, you don't see this very often. Like, can you imagine if, if the president of the United States got up and said, you know what? I don't want you guys to follow me. I want you to follow this guy. And it's just not, it's not how it works in our culture. We try to preserve power as long as we possibly can preserve power. And what John is saying is, no, it's not about me. It's about the kingdom of God. So he's uplifting other people. And this should be true, especially if you're a Christian and you're discipling. You should hope to have other Christians who are growing in their maturity because of the way you are discipling them. That's one of my goals here to sin is that we would have a culture of that. That people would, would invest into you, but you would also invest into others. That it wouldn't just be about me standing up here on a stage, but it would be what happens Monday through Friday. Or Monday through Saturday. I don't know why I skipped Saturday. Uh, <laughs> Monday through Saturday as you're developing and discipling other people. Uh, I love this quote from John Maxwell. He's a, he's a leadership guy. He says, our abilities as leaders will not be measured by the buildings we built, the institutions we established, or what our team accomplished during our tenure. You and I will be judged by how well the people we invested in carried on after we are gone. And this is hard for my ego and my pride, but here's how you'll know if I was a good leader of ascent. It will never be while I am here. It'll be what happens after I leave. And I don't know about you, but when I leave something, I kind of want it to go a little bit worse. You know, like I, mean, I want it to go okay, but I want people to know that Blake was good at what he did, you know. So without him, we're not going to be as, as good. But the measure of a, of a good leader is that, you know, that they do good while they're there. The measure of a godly great leader is that they set the people up after them to be better than what they were. And this should be your goal in parenting. Your goal in parenting is not just to have good kids while they're with you, but, but to set them up to have what you didn't have. So that their kids can go further than your kids. And I think you, we all kind of understand that. But, but are we developing intentionally for it? I bragged on him last week. I won't brag on him again because his head will get too big. But my uh, grandfather-in-law, Junior, is a great example of this. Uh, he, uh, when, when, you, when you go to Christmas at their family, it is just this amazing feeling of legacy. It's like what I want. Uh, because Junior came to, came to Christ pretty late in life. But he raised his kids in such a way that they all became Christians. And not just Christians because they had to be, but they, they loved Jesus. And it's so cool because all of his grandkids are following Jesus also. And, you know, you go to some families uh, and, and, and it's just it's riddled by kind of this tension in the air. People are argumentative. They're mad at one another. You know, somebody's got a new girlfriend and somebody lost their other spouse that they had or what you know there's just all this brokenness and and i come from parts of family like that and there's nothing wrong with coming from that but you can change that and and then i go to junior's family and and everybody loves each other everybody's kind to one another everybody is still married to their spouse it's it's an amazing place to be and what it is is it's legacy it was developing intentionally so that his kids could be better and then his kids could be better. And, and by God's grace, I hope one day that Taylor and I, when we have kids, because of the legacy of Junior Zollinger and, and Donna Zollinger also. Sorry, Donna, I'm not trying to leave you out. She was probably a bigger part. Somebody had to keep Junior in line uh, <laughs> through all of this. But the point is, is are you developing a, a family like that? Develop intentionally. So that's, Molly, if you want to go ahead and come up. Um, the, the key to all of this, this is a little overwhelming. Uh, it's like, man, I'm supposed to do all of this. Uh, I'm not doing one of those things correct. Let me tell you the most important thing to do, and that's at the end of this text, and that is to be present, to just keep showing up and doing the best that you can. Look at this, 3 John, verses 13 through 15. I have many things to write you, but I don't want to write to you with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends send you greetings. Greet the friends by name. Heard a story about a couple pastors. This is about a decade ago. Um, 
And, and these pastors were bragging, or megachurch pastors, nothing wrong with a megachurch and just by saying that, but they were megachurch pastors, and, and they were talking about how they, uh, they both had these brand new green rooms that they built into their building. And again, nothing necessarily wrong with a green room, a place for a pastor to pray and to get ready before he preaches. But what concerned me was, was the reason why they were bragging. They were bragging because they said that their green room was set up in such a way that they didn't have to interact with people. They could walk right off the stage, right into the green room, right from the green room onto the stage. And I remember that striking me wrong. Like the people I'm supposed to serve, how can I serve them if I'm not with them? Uh, as we, we think about the role of pastor, it's to be a shepherd. And the shepherd can't shepherd if he's not with the sheep. And, and to put it in your life, a dad can't be a father unless he's with his children. A mom can't be a mother unless she's with her children. And by the way, sometimes we can be with them physically, but we're not there mentally and emotionally. True. And what happened to those pastors, now fast forward 10 years, is neither one of them are at their church. One church completely died. The other church is going through turmoil as they try to recover from this. And, and it wasn't simply just bad leadership. It was that they weren't present with the people. So I would encourage you to be present. And that's, as we come into this Christmas Advent season, that's what it's all about, is we come into the greatest leader, Jesus Christ himself, who came as man. Isn't that amazing that the painter stepped into his painting? The God of this universe became flesh. And he showed us all of these things. He, he submitted humbly, even in his time on earth. The, and as Christians, we believe in the Trinity, which means the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal. That they, they all have the same amount of authority. That they are three distinct beings, and yet they're one God. Any kind of metaphor we try to use is ultimately going to be heresy. It's too big for us to even understand. And yet Jesus laid down his right to that as he came to this earth. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he goes to sacrifice his life on the cross for the sins of the world, he says, Father, if there's any other way, but not my will, your will. Jesus submitted to the Father. And we see that he confronts carefully. Jesus is very serious about sin. Very serious about it. He's more serious than most of us. In fact, when we preached through the Gospel of Mark, I said some things that I was just reading Jesus' words and I was scared some of you guys were going to leave. He's intense. But he's gentle. And he doesn't just come to condemn us of our sin. No, he comes to save us from it. He came and lived the life I could not live and died the death I deserve to die to make a way for me to be right with God. And he sends me his Holy Spirit so that I might overcome the sin in my life. He doesn't just call it out. He gives me the power to do something about it. Jesus is the greatest leader. He encourages us frequently. In fact, that's part of the role of the Holy Spirit. I want to I read this verse to you from the message paraphrase, so it won't be on the screen. This is out of the Gospel of John. Jesus says, If you love me, show up by doing what I've told you. I will talk to the Father, and he'll provide you another, and look what the Holy Spirit is described as, friend, so that you will always have someone with you. This friend is the spirit of truth. The godless world can't take him in because they don't have eyes to see him. They don't know what to look for. But you know him already because he has been staying with you and will even be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. Isn't that good news, friends? We have the encouragement of the Holy Spirit within us. And then the last one is develop intentionally. And this is probably the most amazing verse to me. John chapter 14, verse 12 through 14. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. He will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Did you see what Jesus said? Us, the church, will do greater works than he did. You're Jesus. And yet he left us 
in such a way that we can work with him and even do greater works. And I don't think it's greater in, in quality, but it's greater in quantity. as so we spread out across the world. Friends, let us learn from the greatest leader, Jesus. But as he leads us, as we submit to him, I think we'll be far better leaders in our own life. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for Jesus. God, as we come into a season where we celebrate his first coming, God, it is amazing what he has done for us, that he would take on flesh, lay down his divine privileges and die for a sinner like me so that I might have eternal life. And God, as we look forward, we await the day in which the true leader returns. The second coming of Jesus in which there will be no more pain and no more sickness and no more death. And we will all humbly submit to your presence. God, I pray that we would experience that now. That is your will in heaven would be your will on earth. And God, may we lead the way you have led us. And friends, right now, with your eyes closed, head bowed, I just want you to take about 20 seconds. Say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? Father, I pray that you give us the courage to obey what you've called us to do. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.